This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Earlier this year, I put out my first two A History of Episodes, chronicling the rise of A24 films and how the Criterion Collection got started and rose to be the standard of boutique home movie releases. After the huge successes of those two shows, I decided to continue the series going even deeper into film history. On this episode, we are going to discuss Neon, another film distributor who continues to shape the modern movie-going landscape. The company has been responsible for such films like I, Tonya, Little Monsters, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Palm Springs, and last year's Best Picture winner, Parasite. We talked about, on the A24 episode, how it took them only four short years for the company to secure its first Best Picture win for the movie Moonlight. Neon managed to one-up them by winning the film industry's top prize in just three years. So if you didn't have the company on your radar before then, you certainly jolted out of your slumber to see the new giant walking around. The company was created back in 2017 by Tom Quinn and Tim League. Tim League is most well-known for creating the Alamo Drafthouse, a world-renowned movie theater chain that began in 1997. Tim and his wife Carrie got an old parking garage in Austin and began showing second-run movies which is a term for movies that have had their original theatrical release in the days of actual film reels being passed around onto smaller theaters that would show movies that were, by that point, several months old or even a year later at a much reduced rate. Most large cities still have cheap theaters where you can see relatively new films at half the cost of your local major movieplex chain. What Alamo Drafthouse did differently, though, was it would offer a customer a wide selection of alcohol and food at a time when you could only get things like candy, popcorn, and pop at the movies. They eventually became well-known for getting celebrities to record PSAs, advising the audience that they shouldn't talk or use their personal devices during shows, encouraging guests to contact theater workers who would kick out rude patrons mid-film. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Dwayne Johnson here from Disney's newest adventure, Moana, and this is one of the geniuses. The genius, bringing the music to the movie, the one, the only, Lin-Manuel Miranda, creator and star of the Broadway smash, Hamilton. Huge fan, brother. Likewise, sir. But do you know who the true fans are? These people right here at the Alamo Draft House. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we got a special treat for you people, a chance to hang out with us one-on-one. -on -one. Technically, it's one on two, but whatever. But you have to text us a message right now. Are your phones ready? And wrong! Bang, what's your problem? You cannot text at movies. Maybe I should freestyle a verse on these guys to show them how it's not cool to talk and text in the theater. You, you know what, even though that would be dope, I got a better idea. Got a better idea. We're just gonna take the phone. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, but, okay, that was really my phone. Four years later, the leagues moved into their first real theater, renovating an old four-screener and transitioned to showing first-run films as he elevated the customer's movie-going experience. The leagues continued to expand and open new theaters in Texas and franchised its first location to an independent owner. In 2004, they sold the brand, including the naming rights, to then-CEO Terrell Braley, along with John Martin and David Kennedy. One important fact was that they retained an irrevocable license for the three Austin locations. In 2010, Tim League was brought back into the fold to serve as CEO for the rapidly expanding chain that was now up to 10 locations, still only in Texas, but several other states earmarked for future sites. League kept that position until May 2020, where he transitioned to chairman of the board of the directors, as the company now operates in 11 states and has an on-demand streaming service. In 2010, after Tim League's return to the company, he helped start up Drafthouse Films that specializes in 
provocative, visionary, and artfully unusual films, new and old, from around the world. The company has distributed 36 movies between 2010 and 2016, including Four Lions, The ABCs of Death, Mood Indigo, and the Best Foreign Language Oscar-nominated film, Bullhead, from Belgium, and the two Best Documentary-nominated movies, The Act of Killing and its sequel, The Look of Silence. The story on Tom Quinn was a bit trickier to find information on. Luckily, in my research, I came across a press release posted on Deadline. I knew Tom eventually went to work for TWC, otherwise known as the Weinstein Company, and I will get to his tenure and subsequent leaving of the company over differences he had, but I will read the statement that was put out in advance of the 2011 Toronto International Film Festival. Portions of the release have been removed or edited for clarity and length. September 6, 2011. The Weinstein Company announced today that Tom Quinn and Jason Jango have joined forces with TWC co-chairman Harvey and Bob Weinstein to create a new TWC label to bring new films and other specialty entertainment to audiences simultaneously across multiple digital and traditional platforms. Quinn and Jango will serve as co-presidents of the yet-to-be-named label, which will be based in New York. Quinn and Jango were among the first in the film industry to explore the potential of emerging digital platforms and were in the vanguard of developing new strategies for alternative distribution during their tenures at Magnolia Pictures, where they were senior vice president and head of legal and business affairs, respectively. In 2005, Magnolia became one of the first distributors to implement the day-slash-date releasing, premiering Steven Soderbergh's Bubble and Alex Gibney's Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, simultaneously in select theaters and on DVD. Over the next several years, they expanded on the premium VOD theatrical platform model with such films as James Gray's Two Lovers, Neil Marshall's Centurion, Takashi Miike's Thirteen Assassins, Alex Gibney's Client Nine, and Freakonomics, the documentary based on the bestseller, enabling these specialty and independent releases to compete alongside studio content. The new label makes TWC the first studio to premiere select titles across multiple platforms via immediate access to digital and traditional media that will bring TWC's unique, high-quality films to larger audiences than ever before. As co-presidents, Quinn and Django will develop content and distribution strategies that move beyond the on-demand model with a goal of establishing the new label as a marquee destination. Quinn and Django will oversee acquisitions, productions, and distribution of label content. Both will report to Harvey and Bob Weinstein and David Glasser in New York. Previously, Quinn spent more than seven years at Magnolia Pictures as SVP and Head of Acquisitions. He created Magnet Releasing, Magnolia's genre arm, the six-shooter series, as well as the annual Oscar Shorts program. He's acquired and distributed over 100 films, including Ong Back, Man on Wire, The Host, World's Fastest Indian, Jesus Camp, and Let the Right One In. His recent films include Melancholia, 13 Assassins, Hobo with a Shotgun, Troll Hunter, Freakonomics, and Food, Inc. His productions include Cocaine Cowboys 2 and The ABCs of Death. Quinn is also a programmer, having worked for Philadelphia, Atlanta, Woodstock, and Action Fest, a festival he was instrumental in creating. Prior to joining Magnolia, he was at Samuel Goldwyn for seven years, eventually becoming VP of Acquisitions, where he was responsible for acquiring Raising Victor Vargas and Supersize Me. Quinn's first industry job was working in domestic film publicity for Nancy Wellen at Dennis Davidson Associates. Won't even bother saying how late you are. So sorry, guys. We're only there. Mm -hmm. That was two hours ago. 
toast to the bride and the groom. You look glowing today. Never seen you look so happy. The subsidiary that Quinn and Django created was called Radius, and it was active from 2012 to 2018. They are responsible for distributing films such as It Follows, Only God Forgives, 20 Feet from Stardom, Snowpiercer, Blue Ruin, and Cymbeline. If you want to hear more about the Ethan Hawke film Cymbeline from 2014 that is based on the Shakespeare play of the same name, check out episode 52 of Hawkeyes, an Ethan Hawke-themed podcast that I guessed it on back in the summer. I'll include a link in the show notes. Where's our daughter? Where is she? How should I be revenged? Let there be no honor, truth, love, where there's another man. Overall, Radius distributed 41 films in the six years that it was active. Both Tom Quinn and his partner Jason Jango left TWC at the same time in 2015 after feeling the day-and-date release strategy wasn't really working as streaming companies like Netflix was able to successfully bypass the theater gatekeepers completely and have success with films they were distributing. They were hoping to start a boutique prestige distribution company like Sony Pictures Classics that would garner award recognition and a niche but hungry audience. Another rumor as to why Tom Quinn wanted to leave TWC was that when they acquired the rights to Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, Harvey Weinstein, before he was the center of the Me Too movement after receiving over 80 formal complaints of sexual assault and eventually being convicted of two felonies of sexual assault and rape and serving 23 years in prison, he had a different nickname. Harvey Scissorhands. That name came from the need to have his identity on a film and forcing new edits, usually against the wishes of directors who did not have final cut rights. Quinn was fiercely protective of Snowpiercer and managed to convince Weinstein to leave the movie alone as it managed to make over $86 million on a budget of $40 million, making it an extremely successful international film. This chaos. A thousand people in an iron box. 18 years I've hated the train. 18 years I've waited for this moment. This is your world. The train saved humanity. The engine lasts forever. The population must always be kept in balance. I said sit down. In August of 2015, after the chief operating officer of Radius, David Glasser, left the company, the two founders, Tom Quinn and Jason Jango, also left the organization they started and the Weinstein Company as a whole. The duo felt stifled, focusing only on day-and-date releases, and wanted to continue to attract small prestige films and bring them to larger audiences. At the time of their leaving, TWC claimed that they would continue the Radius branch of the company, which it did for three more years before changing the name to Lantern Entertainment and updating the company's strategy. A few months later, at the 2015 edition of the Toronto International Film Festival, Alamo Drafthouse CEO Tim League joined up with the new free agents Tom Quinn and Jason Jango to purchase the distribution rights to the Michael Moore documentary, Where to Invade Next, the director whose last movie was Capitalism, A Love Story, that came out six years prior. At the time, the three men announced that they would be forming a new distribution company together. Quinn and Jango were quoted as saying, Together with Michael Moore is an extraordinary new film, we hope to remind Americans that they have the inalienable right to laugh, especially in an election year. We're thrilled about our new label and can't think of a better film or filmmaker to launch with. 
The trio did not have a name for their company, but planned to come up with one shortly. Unfortunately, the Moore film did not have the same cultural resonance as his earlier films like Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11, and didn't make the group money. My mission? I will invade countries with names I can mostly pronounce. Take the things we need from them and bring it all back home. Because we have problems no army could solve. I'm going to tell you from my own personal life, abstinence works. One man will search the world for answers, and you won't believe what he'll find. You're in prison for murder. Yeah. Right behind you are a whole bunch of very sharp knives. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> After the three men teamed up for Where to Invade Next, things get a little light on information. We know moving forward, Jason Jango isn't a part of the story, but where he ended up is a bit of a mystery. After being on the team that helped win back-to-back Best Documentary Oscars for 20 Feet from Stardome in Citizen Four, Django essentially disappeared from the spotlight. Luckily, I managed to find information about him on LinkedIn, where it shows he runs his own company, Django Consulting, where he lists his role as consultant, advisor, lawyer, and producer. The company's bio says, strategic and legal advisory services for entertainment and media companies, focusing primarily on the development of innovative strategies for production, financing, and distribution of content, as well as the capital formation, partnerships, and operations. And in his About section, he writes, I am a seasoned and entrepreneurial senior executive with a proven track record of creating new paradigms of the entertainment business for the better part of two decades, having held senior roles at some of the most innovative companies in the industry. Currently, I have a consultancy and advisory practice focused on developing strategies for production, financing, and distribution of content, as well as business operations, capital formation, and partnerships. With all that said, I can't find a website for Jane Go Consulting or any news-related items about films he worked on. If anyone knows any more information on Jason, I'd love to hear it. Back to the story now. While IMDb now lists Where to Invade Next as a neon film, it appears to be done so retroactively as all press releases for the movie simply say the distributor duo doesn't have a name yet, and looking at the official releases by Neon on their website is not listed. Things seemed to go quiet for 2016 as they slowly built their team, but in early January 2017, the company made a big announcement. Tom Quinn and Tim League officially launched their new company, Neon. They would later state that the core mission a year later at the Zurich Summit panel on how will the new face of distribution save international cinema. At Neon, part of the differentiation is what will hopefully be our success, is that we are trying to build a brand as providing a consistent slate of films for a sustainable audience of very unique demo, who skew under 45, that have no aversion to violence, no aversion to foreign language, and to nonfiction. The first film they picked up was Nacho Vigalando's English-language debut, Colossal, which had premiered at TIFF in the fall of 2016. The movie starred Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis, about a woman who returns to her hometown as she struggles with alcoholism and seems to unleash a monster in South Korea who is seemingly controlled by her every time she gets drunk. Vigalondo previously directed a segment in ABCs of Death, a film that was distributed by League's Drafthouse Films. You don't remember anything last night, huh? I got really melodramatic, didn't I? Told me that you weren't really on a vacation. That you've been looking for a job for a year and your boyfriend didn't work out? You are out of control. What? I've packed two things. They're in the bedroom. What? 
And since you didn't have any money, you decided to move back here. Is there anything else? Don't remember anything. Neon managed to get their company backed by a group called Sparkle Roll Media, a company which is headed by Jackie Chan. The company only looks to have put out four films, three of them being Chinese-language ones, and the Martin Campbell directed The Foreigner that starred Chan and Pierce Brosnan. Neon opened offices in Austin, home of Alamo Drafthouse, along with Brooklyn and L.A. 2017 was a very active year for the group, as it showed that their mission statement was true. They put out documentaries like Risk, directed by Laura Poitras of Citizen 4 fame, as she tells the story of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and an Errol Morris doc entitled The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's Portrait Photography. They also released Anna Lily Amapur's follow-up to 2014's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night in The Bad Batch, starring Suki Waterhouse and Jason Momoa, along with an Eliza Hitman movie Beach Rats. They also have the featured directorial debut from Matt Spicer called Ingrid Goes West that stars Aubrey Plaza, Elizabeth Olsen, and O'Shea Jackson Jr., about a young woman who becomes dangerously obsessed with her new social media star best friend. The film took a while to find an audience, but has since grown into a cult black comedy hit. The couple that yogas together stays together. Hashtag perfect. True romance vibes. Hashtag yes. perfect. Perfect. Congratulations. Oh my god, it's Ingrid Thorburn. I thought she was in an insane asylum. Live in the sunshine, swim in the sea. Hashtag real coup of 2017 for Neon was I, Tonya, which was directed by Craig Gillespie, who previously helmed the Ryan Gosling lead Lars and the Real Girl, and the Fright Night remake starring Colin Farrell and Anton Yelchin. The bigger news was that the film, which was co-acquired at TIFF in 2016, with a group called 30 West, which was now buying out Sparkle Roll Media Stake to become the majority owner of Neon. 30 West is owned by Dan Friedkin, a division of the Friedkin Group, which is a consortium of automotive, hospitality, entertainment, golf, and adventure companies that's got its movie-making start producing all the money in the world, a film that was notable for replacing disgraced actor Kevin Spacey in the completed film with Christopher Plummer that earned the actor an Oscar nomination for saving the film last minute. Dan Freakin started this new film-specific venture with Mika Green, who previously was the co-head of CAA Finance and Sales Group for the Creative Artists Agency, one of the biggest agencies in the world. The duo later hired Dan Steinman to help run the day-to-day operations with Mika Green. Steinman stepped down as Black Bear Pictures co-president and chief operating officer and Elevation CEO to work at the new venture company. Green knew Steinman as they previously had spent eight years working together at CAA. Back to I, Tonya, though. The film was a huge hit at TIFF and proved that Margot Robbie wasn't just a pretty face from The Wolf of Wall Street as she played disgraced figure skater Tanya Harding in the dark comedy showing the bigger story of her downfall and assault on her rival Nancy Kerrigan. It was a big breakthrough Neon needed to have in year one as they ended up with three Oscar nominations including Best Actress for Robbie, Best Editing, and winning Best Supporting Actress for Allison Janney for her role as Harding's chain-smoking, verbally abusive mother. The haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. Everyone has their own truth. 
In September of 2017, Neon announced it had partnered with Blumhouse Productions, the brainchild of Jason Blum, whose ethos of giving directors carte blanche to make horror and thriller projects as long as they are so strictly confined to their micro-budgets. There have been stories that once a film goes over budget, Blumhouse cuts off any additional funding and it is up to the creatives working on the project to bring in any additional money needed. The company is responsible for hits like the Paranormal Activity franchise, the Oscar-winning Get Out, the Insidious films, and the Invisible Man remake from this year that we covered on episode 104 in our Make Remake with Scare-Traducing's Callum McNabb. Blumhouse already had the label BH Tilt, which worked on smaller budgets than their own films, and Neon was brought on board to work their magic with figuring out how to connect with niche audiences these films would likely have. BH Tilt has only released three movies so far under the guidance of Neon. They are the Lee Whannell film Upgrade, a screen horror life sequel Unfriended Dark Web, and a science fiction horror Don't Let Go starring David O'Yellowo. It is unknown if there are future projects lined up for Blumhouse Tilt. I could find this man and do it. What if I told you I could offer you something that would enable you to walk again? I call it STEM, a computer chip that has the potential to change everything. It's a new, better brain. I am STEM, the system operating your body for you. While Neon released eight films in 2017, they followed up with a steady nine in 2018. There was the Shia LaBeouf-led biopic Borg vs. McEnroe about the tennis rivalry between the steely Swede Bjorn Borg and the American bad boy John McEnroe. They also put out their first fully non-English film Revenge, a French action horror movie. They put out the documentary Three Identical Strangers, which tells the impossible tale of three men who were all raised by different families who realized that they were triplets separated at birth and the fame they gained in 1980. There's also the horror comedy Assassination Nation, the Eminem-produced Bodied about battle rappers, and the Natalie Portman vehicle Vox Lux, where she plays an eccentric pop star that also starred Jude Law. It started when I went to college. It was the first day of school. All these people are coming up to me saying, Eddie, how are you? Eddie, hi. I'm like, my name's not Eddie. I don't know what you're talking about. As soon as this guy turned around, I knew it was Eddie's double. I said, you're not going to believe this. You have a twin brother. Oh, my God. As I reached out to knock on the door, it opens. And there I am. His eyes are my eyes, my eyes are his eyes, and it's true. And then the story went from being amazing to incredible. It was an article to Twins Reunited. I think I might be the third. While it didn't have the box office success Neon might have been hoping, only bringing in $2.2 million worldwide, the Swedish film Border did manage to secure the company its second year with Oscar nominations. It was nominated for Best Hair and Makeup, losing out to Vice, where they transformed Christian Bale into Dick Cheney. Border tells the story of a customs officer who can smell fear, and then proceeds to develop an unusual attraction to a strange traveler while aiding a police investigation, which will call into question her entire existence. The two leads are under heavy prosthetics and make them look troll-like. The movie did walk away with the Uncertain Regard Award Prize at Cannes, an award given out to innovative and daring films each year. 2019 saw the biggest and most successful year for the company yet, as they distribute an astonishing 13 flicks, with several of them being box office hits and critical darlings. They kicked off the year with the documentary Apollo 11, directed by Todd Douglas Miller, which edited together footage of the pivotal mission that saw man land on the moon for the first time. They used never-before-seen 70mm film and didn't feature narration, interviews, or modern recreations, 
but was completely engrossing nonetheless. Interestingly enough, since they used footage shot by astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, they were included as nominees for Outstanding Cinematography for a Non-Fiction Program at the Emmys that year. I'd like to know what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to, to answer. Uh, it's a job that, that we collectively said that was possible and we could do and, and of course that the nation itself is backing us so we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that. They also distributed the docks The Biggest Little Farm and Amazing Grace. In terms of narrative films there's the thriller Loose, drama Clemency and the horror comedy Little Monsters. They had two films which were hoping to be Oscar nominated in Wild Rose about a young Scottish woman played by Jessie Buckley who dreams of being a country and western singer, looked hopeful to nab a best original song nod for Glasgow, No Place Like Home. Another was the French film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which looked like an early international hit and seemed like a lock to get a best international film nomination as it told the story of two women who fall in love when one is tasked with painting the other for her official wedding portrait. Sadly, neither film made the cut at the Oscars, but Neon didn't lose much sleep. Had to find But you know that I had to go Ain't no yellow brick road Running through Glasgow But I found one that's stronger than stone Ain't no place like home Where they had more success was with a movie like Honeyland, the Macedonian documentary that tracks the life of an elderly beekeeper who harvests honey and sells it in the capital city in order to support her and her mother as they live in a very rural, rundown shack. The trouble brews as a nomadic family with several kids set up right next door in this isolated mountain region. The parents seem to jump from scheme to scheme to make money and see that their neighbor is successful making honey. She teaches them how to take care of their own little farm, but not only do they ruin their own batch, but they destroy hers in the process, forcing her to build her honeycombs back from scratch. The movie, showing the natural beauty of Macedonia, was nominated for Best Documentary and Best International Film. It was the first time a doc had ever been nominated in the foreign language category. Honeyland ended up losing to American Factory for Best Documentary. It also lost Best International Film, but that had more to do with the next film we're going to talk about. <laughs> You may remember from earlier in the show how Tom Quinn helped save Snowpiercer from being poorly edited back when he was at Radius. Well, it seemed like the two felt the need to come back together. After Snowpiercer, director Bong Joon-ho signed a deal with Netflix to distribute his follow-up movie, Okja, that, much like Snowpiercer, while they are multilingual films, are predominantly in English with big Hollywood actors as the leads. Quinn and the rest of his Neon team got in early and secured the North American distribution rights for his next film, Parasite, before the film was completed back in 2018. The movie then went on a long and exciting journey, starting with Khan in the spring of 2019, where it won the Palme d'Or as the top film, making it the first Korean film to do so. From there, it went on to get rave reviews at festivals around the world and was a modestly performing hit at the box office that seemed to grow each week as word of mouth spread like wildfire. 
Neon and Bong actually worked together to craft the marketing strategy, utilizing only footage from the first half of the movie for trailers so they don't spoil the twists and turns that come later on. South Korea had previously submitted 30 films for the Best Foreign Language category at the Oscars and never made the final balloting. Burning, the 2016 Lee Chang-dong film starring Stephen Yuen of The Walking Dead fame, made it to the shortlist of nine, but didn't end up getting a nomination. With that unfortunate luck through the years, it was a major breakthrough for Korean cinema for Parasite to even be nominated for Best International Film at the Oscars. Even more surprising was that the movie was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Production Design. That alone was a huge win for everyone involved with Parasite and Neon. Before Parasite, only 11 films not in English had even been nominated for Best Picture, including Life is Beautiful, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Babel, and Amour. The year before, Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, was the early frontrunner to win the top prize, but ended up losing to Green Book. It seemed like the movie being in black and white, not in English, and most importantly, distributed by Netflix with only a limited run in theaters, caused voters to thumb their noses at the film, instead giving us one of the most undeserving Best Picture winners ever. This meant that if Parasite was going to stay competitive, it had a real uphill battle to climb, with far too many think pieces coming out wondering if audiences would even want to read the movies they go see. But see it, people did as it grossed over $50 million in North America and over $70 million in Korea, making it the most profitable Korean film ever made. On the night of February 9th, 2020, history was made. Early in the evening, the movie won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar, a category I usually call the Consolation Prize Oscar, as usually the more daring films that rightfully should be named Best Picture lose out and get a screenplay award as a backup. But the wins didn't stop. It easily won Best International Film Prize, something that was obvious from the onset. Anytime a movie from one of the stricter categories gets outside nominations, it is destined to win its category. Think of how both Up and Toy Story 3 were nominated for Best Picture, and of course, walked away with a Best Animated Feature. In another year, Honeyland getting a Best Doc nomination would have made it the frontrunner for international film, but it wasn't going to beat out Parasite. It looked like that was going to be it for the night for the movie. The second-to-last award of the night was Best Director, and sure enough, Bong Joon-ho won. A year earlier, Alfonso Cuaron won for Roma, and while technically The Artist is a French movie, I wouldn't count Michel Hanzevickis' win as the only line of dialogue is in English, making Bong the second director to win the prize with the movie not being in English or silent. And Todd and Sam, great directors that I admire. If the Academy allows, I would like to get a Texas chainsaw, split the Oscar trophy into five, and share it with, share it with all of you. Uh, thank you. I, I will drink until next morning. Thank you. Since 2000, eight times the Oscars did not give out the best director and best picture to the same movies. A trend I support is not always do they deserve to go to the same movies. Once again, I figured the three wins, a massive accomplishment that it was for Parasite and Bong Joon-ho, can finally start drinking as heavily as he proclaimed he would. But then the unthinkable happened, and it won, beating out other favorites like 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Marriage Story, and Joker. 
It set the record for the most Oscars won by an international film and put Korean cinema on the map as the toast of the world. Neon managed to win their first Best Picture after only three years in business, a masterful feat for the now fully-fledged powerhouse. I feel like a very opportune moment in history is happening right now. While things have gone awry in the world in 2020, Neon continue to put out excellent films. There is the Pete Davidson starring Big Time Adolescence that saw the SNL star making inroads on a movie career, and the Elizabeth Moss drama Shirley that got a rave reviews for her performance as horror writer Shirley Jackson. There are the excellent documentaries Spaceship Earth, The Painter and the Thief, and You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Palm Springs was a surprise indie success, showing Andy Samberg's range and making a star out of Kristen Malati as they relive the same wedding as attendees every day as they are stuck in a time loop. They also put out four horror films, including She Dies Tomorrow and the just-released Bad Hair and Possessor. Good day so far? Today, tomorrow, it's all the same. You! What is going on? Hey, get out of the water, girl! Guess you followed me. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. That I might have heard about? Yeah. Later this year, they have the Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan starring Ammonite, which looks like a British version of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. They currently have eight films slated for release sometime in the future, including Night of the Kings, which has already been submitted as Ivory Coast Oscar candidate for Best International Film, and given Neon's recent track record, should mean good things for them. They also have Memoria, a Pichapong Veracitacos English-language debut that stars Tilda Swinton. I apologize if his name was pronounced incorrectly. What else does the future hold for Neon? Will they continue on the trend like A24 and be the face of cinephilia? With their focus on documentaries and non-English films, they seem determined to be their own kind of powerhouse, offering moviegoers a wide variety of options. Whatever happens, you better believe more excellence will be coming our way with the glowing logo exciting people as they enter a movie theater or turn on their TVs. That concludes A History of Neon. I hope you have enjoyed learning about the company. If you like this episode, make sure you check out our other two A History of Episodes chronicling A24 films in the Criterion Collection. Stay tuned for next week's episode where Royce Benson will join the show as we rank the best neon films. Royce was previously a guest on our A24 ranked episode back on show 109. What ones are your favorites? Or do you have any suggestions for a future of A History of Shows? Let us know by sending an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com and we'll read your response on the air. You can also follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.